Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1? We're going to begin today a series that will take us about 22 weeks to get through as we look at the entirety of the book of Romans. And uh, for those of you who have been with me through book studies in the past, 22 weeks seems like a millisecond of time. Uh, it's not uncommon for us to look at a book like Romans and spend over a hundred weeks going through it because if you want to really dig into it exhaustively, you certainly have no trouble doing it. There's an immense amount of material in there. I think years ago when I first came here, the first book I taught was Romans. I began in Romans chapter 1 and I did verse 1 the first week and then verse 2 the second week and I think that kind of set the pace. Um, <clears throat> we're going to move at a faster pace this time, um, but at the same time, hopefully we can begin to address what Paul considered to be really the, the central message of his ministry, and that is the gospel of grace. And what the book of Romans does is explain why that is and why that's essential and central to our faith. So if you don't mind, would you stand with me? I want to begin by reading the first 17 verses which encompasses both Paul's introduction of himself and his statement of purpose behind the writing of this letter. He begins in verse 1 by saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him and for His namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God, and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve for my, with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we take upon ourselves the immense honor of studying your word, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. That, Lord, that our faith, as Paul said to the Corinthians, might rest not simply in human wisdom, but in this power of the Holy Spirit that Paul speaks of in this opening dialogue. I pray, God, that our hearts would receive that power and it would speak and minister to our lives in a way that would magnify you and bring joy and peace, that the gospel of grace might not be something that's just a concept that we ascend to, but it would be a reality that touches and transforms our lives. We pray for this help, Lord, this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of the 21 letters that we find in the New Testament, but only two of those letters were written to people whom he had never personally met. Uh, the first one was a letter to the Colossians, the city of Colossia, 
But the second was the letter to the Romans. In fact, at the time that Paul wrote this letter in the year 56 AD, there's no evidence that any of the apostles had yet come to the city of Rome. Uh, this is surprising, really, in some ways, since at the time, Rome was the largest and the most important city in the world. Uh, uh, later writers would attest, they literally and figuratively said that all roads lead to Rome. That, in other words, it was the cultural, economic, military, and any other way you want to measure it, it was the center of the world. Everything began there, and everything circled back and returned there. It was the first city in the history of the world to reach a population of one million people. And there was not another city until 1810 when London became the second city in the history of the world to reach a population of one million people. So almost 2000 or 1800 years later before another city comes to have the magnitude that Rome did and certainly the impact and the influence that it did. That's why even today when we talk about the history of the world, there's a tendency almost always to reference everything that has taken place amongst mankind back to the patterns and the struggles and the issues that arose from ancient Rome. So the question that we would ask, at least I would ask, is how in the world did the Church of Rome begin? Where did it start? And this is interesting because scholars are pretty much in agreement that it came through the Jews who had received Christ on the day of Pentecost in the year 33 AD. Less than two months after Jesus' crucifixion, um, the city of Jerusalem was jammed as it was every festival period with up to a million visitors from around the world. And this was the Feast of Pentecost, and we read that at this feast in Acts chapter 2, verse 5, that there were visitors from every nation under heaven, including visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. So that at this feast, in which the church actually had its birth, its origin, there apparently were some Roman visitors who responded to Peter in Acts chapter 2 when he presented the gospel message, and having received Christ, returned to Rome and began to share their faith in the Jewish synagogues from which they had come. And they apparently shared it very effectively because when Paul writes this letter 23 years later, he says in verse 8 of our reading, your faith is being reported all over the world. In other words, it had become common conversation amongst the Christians in particular, but also apparently amongst non-Christians as well, that there was this movement of God, this turning of the faith to Christ in the city of Rome that was becoming quite noticeable. That the church was already well established by the time Paul wrote this letter is proved by the fact that in chapter 16 he lists the names of some 50 different people who were familiar to him as well as home churches that these people were attending. Now, we don't know the basis of Paul's knowledge of these people since he hadn't been to Rome, but it's quite common in those times for many of these people to travel around the Roman world and to be engaged in business with other peoples. And so Paul, looking at this, this movement of God, writes in chapter 15 at the close of the letter, he says, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not build on someone else's foundation. This is why, he says, I have often been hindered from coming to you. So when we look at Paul's ministry, he tended to focus on places which was basically virgin territory, someplace where the gospel had never been presented before. And yet at the same time, he said, I've always had this passion just to see what God is doing amongst you. And as he would add, to have the opportunity to invest some of myself in what God is doing there so there might be fruit. Paul had no idea when he wrote these words that <clears throat> within just four years he would in fact be in Rome, not as he expected, not as his own expense, but rather he would be sent there as a prisoner of Rome. 
We remember when he returned from having this trip in which he wrote this letter. He wrote the letter probably from the city of Corinth, and he returned to Jerusalem. Paul was arrested, and he was charged with blasphemy, and there was an attempt to kill him. He was then taken by the Romans to the city of Caesarea on the coast of Israel, and there he was held a prisoner for two years, going through a series of inquiries and trials. And finally, realizing he was not going to get a fair hearing, as a Roman citizen, he exercised his rights to appeal to Caesar. Now, it may seem incomprehensible to us in our day and age, but in the ancient world, if you were a Roman citizen, you could appeal your case, especially if it was a capital case of, which could lead to your death, you could appeal directly to the emperor, and the emperor was legally bound to hear your case. So literally, some historians said that some of the emperors died young because of the time they spent listening to one case after another. So that this wasn't something that was lightly taken, it was seriously considered, and from the moment Paul says, I appeal to Caesar, the situation in Caesarea is closed, he is put on a ship, and he is sent to Rome. Well, the last chapter of Acts goes into detail about the events of his journey there, but he ends up spending the next two years in Rome. Two years in which not only did he go through the whole legal process, eventually being acquitted of the charges that had been brought against him, but also having the opportunity to stay within his own rented home and to minister to the church in Rome. So that all of this was a fulfillment, certainly, of a desire that he had in his heart. But I think the thing's important is that four years prior to this, Paul writes a letter stating what his desire is and later finds it to be fulfilled. Well, there's also an interesting irony, at least to me, in this story, because although the church had been founded by Jewish believers, by the time Paul writes this letter, and certainly when he arrives in, Jeru in, in Rome four years later, the church is primarily a Gentile church, not a Jew Jewish church. And uh, we have some kind of indications of why that may have been the case. You see, because Paul, even in the letter, says that their greatest opposition was from the Jews. In Romans eleven twenty eight, he writes, he says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they, speaking of the Jews, are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved ones on account of the patriarchs. One of the things we see in the New Testament, and especially in the book of Acts, is that the primary enemies of the Christians in the first decades of the church's history were not the Romans, were not any other movement or nationality. It was primarily the Jews. The Jews who at first accepted Christianity as being another sect within the system soon began to find themselves in opposition to it, not only because was Christianity becoming so successful within the Jewish community, not only in Jerusalem but around the world, but also because they began to run counter to Jewish theology. They began to lift up Jesus as the Son of God, which was a very offensive concept to most of the Jews. And more importantly, as Paul's understanding of the gospel began to take hold, the idea that someone could be saved and go to heaven simply by believing in faith was unacceptable. That even today within Orthodox Judaism, the idea that you're saved simply by faith is not widely accepted. In fact, it's often the idea that, you, that what is really taught is that you do your best to live a good life and you hope that when you get to heaven, you have been good enough to be saved and to get to stay there and become a permanent resident. Now, that's not uncommon in general thinking. I find that even many Christians kind of operate from that perspective, that I'm going to get to heaven because I've tried hard enough, I've been good enough, I've, you know, on the, in the balance of life, I've got more good works than I've got bad works. And what Paul seeks to do is essentially explode that entire concept which is frightening to certain people, especially if you've invested a lot of time and energy in trying to earn heaven, and then somebody comes along and says, you know, good job, but it's not worth anything. You know, a beautiful garden, you just planted it in somebody else's yard, and you can't reap the fruit. That's kind of a disappointing moment. And so when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, this isn't something, he says, the gospel is not something that disappoints. 
But let me tell you, trying to save yourself will. And it's important for us to understand that this is where Paul is going in his presentation. He seeks to prove that it is the power of God that saves us. It is not our own power, our own effort, and our own energy. This is a slippery issue for most people. It's a very difficult thing for most non-Christians and even most Christians to get their minds around because we live in a pay-as-you-go world. We live in a world where you have to earn the right, you have to deserve something, you have to pay for something. And the idea that salvation can be a free gift is just staggering to, to the mind. I've shared this story many times before, but it's probably the best one I have on, in my life experience, where I, I was talking to a, a Jewish businessman in the Moscow airport, and I began to present to him the story of the gospel in the simplest way I could. He asked me why I was in Russia. I told him why I was there, and I began to share the gospel with him. And, and as I finished presenting the idea that you can ask Jesus into your heart and He will forgive you for your sins, of which through our conversation I realized His were many and deep and serious, uh, He simply looked at me and said, it's too easy. It's too easy. And I in a moment of, of thoughtfulness, which isn't common for me, I just responded by saying, no, you're wrong. It, it's not easy. It's simple. But it's the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life because to do it, you have to surrender yourself completely to God. And that's the hardest thing. That's going to be your problem. Well, at that point, they called us for boarding. He looked at me, walked away, and once after we got seated, he waved at me from up front, and that was the last I ever see, saw or heard of him. But I thought it was such a telling moment, because really this is the challenge that we face. There's something in us that wants to have a sort of assurance that I have done this, I have accomplished this, I, I have fixed this problem, I've taken care of it. And when you're talking about something as serious as you're in eternity, is serious as what happens to you once you die, and to have to entrust that fate to someone other than yourself seems terrifying to most people. Until you recognize you really don't have a lot of horsepower to solve the problem. Let me illustrate by another story that just occurred to me as I was waiting to come up here. 1968, I was a hippie, that's hippie singular, and I was I was, I was hitchhiking up Highway 1 in the California, northern California coast of San Francisco. It was a terrible downpour. It was late at night. I was wet. I was cold. And in those days, people would take a look at you and uh, usually pass you by. It was hard getting a ride if you were a hippie. And as I'm standing there, suddenly this little Ford Fairlane pulls over, and I run up to the door and open it up, and here's a gentleman probably in his late 60s, and next to him is a chihuahua wrapped in blankets and towels sitting next to him. And he invites me to get in, so I got into his car, very thankful to be in some place that was dry and warm. And he began taking me down the road. And as we were driving along, he said to me, you know, I don't usually pick up hitchhikers, but when I have my dog with me, I don't worry. I had met, grow up, grew up as a bird hunter, and I knew how to wring a bird's neck. And um, I was pretty sure I could do it just as quickly with this chihuahua if I needed to. <laughs> but it always, I, I, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to be put out of the car at this point. But I just, inside I was just laughing because really you're trusting in this, this thing, this is what you're trusting in. I don't know, he was probably trying to intimidate me by the size of the animal, but the whole point was that it was such a, a silly thing to say because it was obvious there was no power in it. In the same way, it's such a silly thing for you and I to say that we're going to earn our way to heaven or we're going to live up to the standards of God's holiness and somehow purify ourselves and be good enough and do the right things and that's going to earn us a way into heaven. There's such a powerlessness in that. 
such an incapacity that from heaven's perspective at least, it's staggeringly foolish. It's staggeringly absurd and ridiculous. And so it is that Paul, seeing that this struggle was beginning to take place, because as the early church was developing, it was a constant battle that Paul had to deal with. There were these men they referred to as Judaizers who were coming into the churches. And because they had come from Jerusalem, and they had authority from some of the leaders there, and because they were knowledgeable in the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, because remember the Old New Testament had not yet been written. It was being written as they were speaking. But it had not been written, and the theology had not been clearly laid out in any kind of systematic way. That these men would come in, they were knowledgeable, they were experts in the law, they could speak authoritatively and sometimes very eloquently. And these young Gentile believers were easily persuaded, easily swayed in believing that, yes, it's not enough to have Jesus, I also need to keep the Sabbath, I need to be circumcised, I need to keep the law. And this became the real struggle. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, we have the first council of the church, and this becomes the point of argument. Can Gentiles be believers in the fullest sense? Can they be child, children of God, born again, destined for heaven, without also becoming Jews? Now, to you, that may seem kind of an academic question in this day and age, but it's still a question that confronts Christians as well. Because oftentimes we have people who come to a saving relationship with Christ and suddenly they're presented by some group or organization saying, well, it's great that you have Jesus, it's great that you've been born again, but do you also do X, Y, Z? I call it the Jesus plus theology. It's saying that knowing Jesus is, is not enough, you have to add something to it. And it's very attractive, it has a real magnetism to it based upon our own sense of our own inadequacy and our own sinfulness. And it's hard for us to sit back and say, well, certainly God wants something from me. I mean, certainly I have to do something to, to pay God back for the great sacrifice that He's made for me. But you know, in a way, it's kind of like saying to your mother, your father, you gave me life and therefore I want to do something to pay you back. I mean, I appreciate the fact that my parents gave me life I appreciate the fact that my parents fed and housed and cared for me, but how do I repay them other than just simply loving them and being thankful for what they did? And the same thing is true within relationship to God. My parents did not conceive me because they decided that they owed me something, and they never asked me to pay them back for the privilege. The whole point is that God, when we are born again of the Spirit, this is God's gift to us. And Paul's concern, and rightly so, was that when we lose sight of the simple purity of that reality, there is something more significant that becomes lost, that we really become proponents and, and followers, patrons of a false religion, of something that is not the gospel message. Because everything that the gospel is about is a total sufficiency of Christ to pay the price for my sins past, present, and even future. And to trust totally in that is not easy because the mind of man is always going back to, yeah, but what about? And you and I can easily fill in a list of things. And so Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you that this is about God's power, not yours. It's about this doctrine of grace, not your goodness. And I'm going to explain it to you intellectually, biblically, scripturally, but in the end, it's something that you have to receive by faith. Well, this had become apparently a huge conflict within the church in Rome, because actually the Roman writer Suetonius tells us, writing of the history of this period, he says, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, probably a reference to Christ, he, speaking of Emperor Claudius, expelled them from Rome. 
In Acts chapter 18, we read about a parallel, parallel historical uh, citation about that, about the Jews being expelled from Rome because they were having such fights amongst themselves. And many historians think it was really over the issue of the acceptance of Gentiles into the church that literally the church in Rome began to split apart and even many Jewish Christians began to walk away from Christianity because they could not tolerate the idea of Gentiles being embraced into fellowship without becoming fully Jewish. Well, this expulsion of the Jew may have been the impetus for Paul writing this letter. <clears throat> For the order would have included many of those who were also accepting of the Gentiles and who were in leadership. Now think about this for a moment, that the leadership of the church is suddenly expelled. We experienced something like this years ago when we were planting churches in Russia, where at one point, finally, the Russian Duma passed a law that made it virtually impossible for a lot of the missionaries, American missionaries and from other countries, to stay in country. And so as a consequence, they had to leave as their visas expired, and the churches were left without pastoral leadership in many cases. And, and there was a season of tremendous struggle that took place as the church tried to really strengthen itself. And I can imagine that the same kind of thing was happening in Rome, that suddenly many of the Jewish leaders who became the pastors of these churches because of their biblical background and experience were now forced out of the country, out of Rome, and leaving the church without a, a, a extensive enough mature leadership, which may explain why Paul begins this letter by identifying himself not so much as a Jew, but as he says, a servant, or more literally, a doulos, a, a slave, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Now, this would have had immediate identification with many of his readers because Rome, we're told, was consisted of 50% of the population were slaves. The Roman economy ran on slavery, and so that most of those who were coming into the churches were the people who were on the bottom rung of the societal ladder who saw advantages in the faith and converted to Christianity. And so Paul begins by saying, I am too a slave. Even though I'm a Roman citizen, even though I'm born of the Jewish faith, I do not cling to those rights, but I see my identity as being the bond slave of Jesus Christ. I belong to Him. He has purchased me. And because of that, He called me to be apostle. In other words, I didn't assign myself to be an ap apostle or a messenger. Literally, the word means a special messenger. I didn't, I didn't choose to be a guy who would go into the world and preach the gospel. That was something that God called me to. He, he placed upon me. I remember years ago, people asked me, how did you decide to become a pastor? And I said, I didn't. I was doing it for about 10 years when I realized I was. In fact, for years, I really wasn't comfortable even being referred to as a pastor because I had some baggage from my childhood that made that an uncomfortable proposition. And I remember once being in, uh, in, in the mountain, driving through the mountains of Colorado, and I pulled into this little town and had no cash, went into a bank, gave the gal my credit card and said, would you give me a cash advance? At the time, I mean, keep in mind, we're talking about the early 90s, so I had, you know, a mullet, you know, um, business in front, party in back, you know, and, I, uh, and uh, <clears throat> it was to my shoulders, so it was long, and uh, I walked in and she looked at me, stranger from out of town, trying to draw money on her credit card. We always know these shifty kind with hair touching their shoulders and all the rest, and I'm standing there, and so she starts asking me questions and trying to be very discreet about it, but, you know, it's kind of obvious that what she was doing. And so she says, oh, so what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And she looked up at me, and she said, you don't look like one. And I responded, thank you very much. <laughs> because in my mind, that was not a compliment to say, you look like you're a pastor. You know, because it's like the guy who walked up the guy and said, are you a Christian? He said, why, yes. Why do you ask? He said, because you're frowning. Um, <laughs> the whole point is, I want to move really quickly past that one. <laughs> Change subject. Okay. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. Excuse me. I need to get my pacifier out here real quick. 
Okay, there we go. Um, the whole point being basically that Paul said, this wasn't something that I appointed myself to, but this as a slave, I, chose, I responded to the invitation, and as so, God set me apart, he goes on to say, literally commissioned me to share the gospel of God. And it's that gospel that he sets out to declare because he says even though it gospel that has foundation in Judaism, as he says, it was promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, regarding his son who in his human nature was a descendant of David. So he's saying it's God, it does have roots in Judaism, and I'm not rejecting that. But he also says it is a gospel of grace that was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. That it's declared not by letter, not by transcript, and not by some kind of carvings in stone, but it's declared by power. What gave the tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai such significant is that they, as the text literally says, they were written on stone by the hand of God. It was brought to them as a demonstration of the power of God with fire and lightning and cloud and storm and everything else, so terrifying that the people said to Moses, you go talk to him, we'll wait down here. But there was this manifestation of God's great glory and His power that revealed to them, and they accepted that because not only because it was great principles of a way in which they could live their life or platitudes of truth that should be embraced, but more than that, it came to them with power. And he says, Jesus Christ came to us, revealed to us by God as being the path of salvation, and it was revealed to us by the power of His resurrection from the dead. The power. And the word that He uses power there is the word dunamis. It's, it's explosive, dynamic power. It's where we get our word dynamite. It's the idea, it is the kind of power that affects the environment it enters into that it's unmistakable in its presence. It changes the terrain. It alters the reality. It reshapes people's worlds and their lives and their circumstances. And Jesus Christ came to us with that power. And it's this power we'll find in Paul's other letters that underlines his message, that the gospel without power becomes something other than the gospel. If it is, the power there to change lives isn't present, then it's something is disconnected. Something is not taking place. I remember a gentleman telling me years ago, when I was a young man, he was a television repairman, and he told me about going out and repairing TVs in people's homes. And this was the early days of TV. Some of you remember that, when we'd sit at 6 in the morning watching the Indian pattern on the screen until the first show came on, and you usually had a choice between two to three different programs every morning, and so you're, 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 your expectations were low, and you were happy with that. But he told me how that he got this call. These people's TV didn't work. And so he says he drove 30 miles to their house. And when he got there, uh, they pointed to the TV and he turned the knobs and nothing happened. And then he simply looked behind the TV set and discovered the problem. It wasn't plugged in. And I would simply say that many times Christians can't really see God moving in their life because they're not plugged in. They're not accessing His power. And so the idea that it's the power of God that saves me is also the power of God that transforms me. It's the power of God that reshapes my life. And the appetite and the desire of the Christian is that I be connected to that power, that I have to want that. And this is really where the problem comes because if I'm relying upon myself as the manager of my own life, and I'm depending upon the access that I have to resources to make and to do and accomplish things that I'm soon going to expire and run out of those things. I'm going to reach an, an emotional or energy bankruptcy or financial bankruptcy or whatever it is. I'm not going to have sufficient resources or funds to meet the need in my life. And unfortunately, that is the point in which most Christians turn and say, God, I need your help. 
And it's that attitude that Paul wants us to develop in our life, that we are a people who constantly recognize, as Zechariah the prophet said, it's not by might, it's not by strength, but it's by your spirit, Lord, the power of your spirit in the life of the believer. So the question I would just simply say to you is, friend, do you feel that power in your life? Because if you are simply just looking at the letters on the page and you're memorizing them like rote mantras and you're responding them as if they're magical words that you can say over and over again or you can read them and suddenly they'll change your life, you're probably fairly frustrated at some point and saying, why is it I hear these dramatic stories of what God does in other people's lives, but I do not see them active and expressive in my life? In other words, it's an admission of saying, there's a powerlessness to my life. Why is that? Well, Paul seeks to speak to this on a different level. And interestingly, it's not simply that he says, well, you first have to experience it and bring your mind into agreement, but rather you find that as your mind begins to grasp the truth, you start knocking on the right doors. You start asking the right questions. And this is a gospel, he goes on to say, that is not only given to us in power, but he says it's for all people, for Jews and Gentiles. He says, we received, in verse 5, grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome, he says in verse 7, who are loved by God. And that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. The idea that this is for all. Now, you may be sitting here and saying, well, of course it's for all people. But that was not necessarily the mindset of the first century world. It certainly wasn't the mindset of the Jews, and it isn't today. In fact, even within certain communities within Christianity, there's an idea of kind of an exclusiveness. Well, it's really for those people who fit into these parameters, But the simple fact God God says is that all people bear the image of God and therefore are beautiful in His sight and are worth saving and are valuable. One of the problems we have sometimes is we're selective in how we want to allow our lives to connect with the world around us. We want to to connect with that which is comfortable and familiar and we feel like is manageable by our life experience. And yet, So many of us have discovered that when God links us with people who are vastly different from us and totally disconnected from us and who are, we're challenged in a realm of experience that's so far out of what we know, there we see what? First, we see our own inadequacy and weakness, and then as we cry out, God sends His power. God loves to fill vacuums. And our problem is we hate vacuums, and we want to fill every vacuum with ourselves. So you find that there is this tug-of-war going on in your life as a child of God. On one hand, you, you really want to see God move in your life in a wonderful way as long as it's predictable, controllable, and manageable, as long as it's safe and not edgy or sketchy, and yet God at the same time says, you know, I live in the unsafe and in the sketchy, and on the edges, and I challenge you to go there with me, because that's how you change the world that you're part of. Paul begins the the great treaties of this book in verses 16 and 17. There's, I have not found a commentator who disagrees that this is probably the most important passage in all of Paul's letters where he says to them in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as is written, and then he quotes Habakkuk Habakkuk 2.4, excuse me. Well, I got that all wrong, didn't I? (laughs) The righteousness, the righteous will live by faith. Now, why does Paul begin by saying, I am not ashamed? Well, you have to understand from a human point of view, especially in that time, being a Christian in a Roman world was an incredibly 
shameful thing. I, I, I struggle to find anything in my world that compares to it, to associate with something that was quite as shameful. You see, for the Romans and the Jews alike, conversion to Christianity represented a rejection of everything that they stood for. I mean, it was a rejection of one's heritage, of one's culture, of one's nationality, one, rejection of one's entire family as you knew it. So that what usually followed when you came to faith was ostracism at best and sometimes even torture and death. It's hard for us to imagine, but this is still true in large parts of the world, in large parts of the Muslim world and in the Hindu world. For people to convert to Christianity is almost suicidal in their perspectives because they will be thrown out of their families and there are no social services and there are no legal protections. And so you are bereft of friend and family. And if you are not taken into a Christian community after you come to faith, you will literally starve to death or be forced into the most despicable circumstances. And that's the way it was in the Roman world, in the, in the Jewish world, that even within Judaism today, at least Orthodox Judaism, that for someone to convert to Christianity, you become dead to your family. You're no longer part of the family. They literally have a, a ritual funeral for you. You're dead and you no longer are someone who is part of their family. In the eyes of both the Romans and the Jews, to follow a leader who had been crucified was even more inconceivable. Because not only was crucifixion the most painful way probably ever devised for a person to die, but it was also the most shameful. To the Jews, it meant you had been cursed by God because in Deuteronomy 21, 23, they said, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. A cross is made of wood. A cross, therefore, becomes a tree. If you're hung on a tree, you are cursed by God. In fact, you'll still hear that argument from many Orthodox Jews even today. We can't, I can't accept Jesus. He was hung on a cross. He was hung on a tree, and he's cursed. Well, what they don't understand is, yes, he was cursed. He became a curse for us. That's the whole point. He became cursed as the one who received the curse and the judgment of our sins upon himself, that they might be on him and not on us. But in their minds, that, was, that just closed the doors. And they'll tell you even today, well, I could never accept Jesus as being the Messiah because he was crucified. To the Romans, it was a, the death of a slave and the worst of criminals. And to die on the cross was to bring shame upon your whole lineage. In fact, as illustrated by what's called the uh, Aleximenos uh, graffiti, which was found in the Palatine area of Rome, uh, this was actually in a sl slave's training camp uh, on the Palatine Hill in the center of Rome from about the second century. And what it was, it was a graffiti that was carved into the wall that showed a man hanging or crucified upon a cross with the head of a donkey or a jackass. And what it says in, in the Greek lettering underneath it is Alexamenos worshiping his God. It's the first symbol of the cross that we have from antiquity. It's the oldest symbol of the cross. And it's not the symbol or an image of the cross in what we often conceive it as this thing of uh, this beautiful emblem of Christ's death on the, for us, the sacrifice for our sins, but rather it became a point of mockery. This is why the early church used the fish more often and almost exclusively for about the first 300 years. In fact, it wasn't until crucifixion was outlawed in Rome and the memory of crucifixion was forgotten because it was no longer displayed that the church began to use the cross as a symbol to depict what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. We gained something, we lost something. We gained a symbol, we lost the significance of the shame that was involved in making a profession of faith. So that those who were followers of Christ were considered amongst the Romans to be atheists, we say, what do you mean, atheists? Well, because they rejected the gods. You don't believe in the gods, then you're an atheist. And so there was all sorts of consequences that came as a result of being a follower of Jesus. And yet, most of the Gentile converts in Rome were the lowest echelons of society. 
slaves and some freedmen, a few wealthy and influential people, but not many, mostly women. And so as a result, we understand why Paul would begin by saying, this is who I am. Because there was no lower status in their culture than to be a slave. And Paul says, I have embraced the lowest place in our society as a slave of Jesus Christ. In the minds of most, to claim to be a follower of Jesus would have been a humiliating embarrassment. In fact, I find that we're kind of moving in that direction again, aren't we, in our culture? We find ourselves increasingly feeling awkward by saying, well, you know, I'm a I'm a Christian because of how people respond. They, people want to say and say, well, I'm not really a religious man. I'm a spiritual man, to which I always like to ask, what exactly does that mean? Sometimes we're afraid to ask people about things that don't make sense because we figure that they're the ones who understand and we don't. Most often I find, well, like, what exactly does that mean to be spiritual? What it usually means is stop asking me because I really haven't thought about it, but it's a good way of getting out of this conversation. But why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? If it was so shameful in the culture, why wasn't he ashamed of it? And the answer is very simple. He says, because it is the very power of God, the dunamis of God. Again, he uses that word. Earlier he said, it was the power of God demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the power of God that knocked him from his horse on the road to Damascus and blinded his eyes and spoke to him through blistering light in revelation and opened his heart to see the truth of God and changed his world. The same Paul said, that power that touched, raised Jesus and that resurrection power that raised me from my life of spiritual deadness is the very power that God has given us for salvation because there is no other power. There is nothing else. And even though this may seem so obvious and, and elementary to some of you, the reason I'm hammering the head of this nail so hard is because we live in a day and age where Christians are operating in the Jesus plus mindset of the culture. Oh, it's great. You're Christian? Good, good, good. That's great. Because I'm spiritual too. And suddenly we begin to broaden it and say, well, you know, as long as you're religious, as long as you have faith, as long as you're a good person, as long as you're these things, and what the Scripture says is, those things are fine. If I have a choice between you being a good person and a bad person, and you're my neighbor, I'm going to pick good person over bad person any day. But if we're going to talk about the eternal destiny of your soul, you better be more than a good person. You better have the power of God. You may have the power of the resurrection of Christ to save your soul, or you will not be saved. You'll not be just good in eternity. You'll be well done. <laughs> Again, this word dunamis, is, is, it's divine power. It's God power. It's miracle power. It's moral power. It's saving power. It's a power that has no comparable in the world of men, it comes from heaven and invades our life and invades our world. It cannot be fabricated. It cannot be duplicated. It is something that has to come spontaneously and freely from God as His will. But he says it's the power of God that reaches down and that saves us. It's the power of God to do the most impossible thing, which is the savings of souls and the transformation of their lives. For he goes on to say, it is the gospel, for in this gospel there is a righteousness. You know what another way of describing righteousness is? Shamelessness. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to be freed from shame. There is a shamelessness from God that is revealed, a, a shamelessness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the shameless will live by faith. Those who are no longer bound by the shame of their own failing inadequacy. And that's why I would say that it is the power not only to save my soul, it is the power to save my sanity. 
Because our sanity is constantly under attack because of a cauldron of shame that we live in in our world. Not only do every one of us in this room have an inventory of things we hope never make the front page or even the back page to the local news line. When somebody said, the worst day of your life is when you see the 60-minute van pull up in front of your house. <laughs> but we all also know that we are not good enough or smart enough gifted enough or attractive enough or rich enough or fast enough or strong enough or charming enough. You can go on and on and on. Whatever it is, the measuring stick that you're using in your life, there is something about you that is always not enough. And even if at some point you reach that pinnacle of success, you know that you can't stay there and you will begin to slide. I was talking to some people in the entertainment industry and they, an interesting statement they said the goal is to become successful and stay there for 10 years because after 10 years your career will begin to go downhill I thought 10 years and then you go downhill they said you can hope for later on in your life there'll be kind of a revival maybe you'll get an eagles tour or something like that going you know maybe hell does freeze over and you go back on the road I don't know but it's, it's a fleeting moment that passes away very quickly. As God said to King Belshazzar in the height of his glory, that you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. I read a biz, uh, Jim Collins' book, Why the Mighty Fall, a business book. He made an interesting statement. He said, when the CEO of a corporation is featured on the cover of Fortune magazine, you know their career is going downhill. In other words, that's the pinnacle. If I can get on Fortune magazine, the part of the Fortune 500, that he says usually they make that when they're on their way down, not on their way up. So what do we do? We spend most of our lifetime hiding and disguising and covering it. We fake it until we make it, and then when we make it, we struggle to hold on to it, but the more we struggle, the more slippery it becomes. And it's almost like if you try to keep it, you'll lose it, and if you lose it, you can't get it back. We live fearfully of being exposed for being the empty suit that we are. But Paul said, not me. Why not? Because I found something that is powerful enough not only to remove all that shame, but also to enable me to stand clean before my God. No more rituals, no more superstitions, no more chants, no more charms, no more cover-ups, no more posing, no more posturing or pretending. I am clean. I am clear before God because I have simply said, I'm trusting you, Jesus. I'm trusting in your power. It's as if he is wanting to say to us, I simply believed what Jesus said, and when I did, that power fell on me, and it changed me forever because it was no longer about me. It was all about him. There is a real pull point for us. You see, we desperately want it to be about us. Every day I wake up, and who's the first one on my mind? I just, I, 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 I find myself without even trying, worshiping the evil trinity, me, myself, and I. And it takes discipline, really, to step back and just fall on your face and say, God, unless you build the house today, everything I do will be in vain. I am not ashamed. Literally, I am not afraid that I will be let down because in its root meaning, that word ashamed means to be disappointed. It's the idea that you step out trusting in something and then it collapses underneath you and you fall to your demise or to your injury. And we live in this, don't we? When he say, live by faith, we say to ourselves, but what happens if I step out and God doesn't catch me? And Paul said, but if you want to know the shameless life, the joyful life, the bountiful life, you are going to have to be willing to take that risk. To become a Christian in Rome, 
meant that you had to step away from everything that had become the basis of your life and who you were. And you said, I'm going to believe in Jesus. And <laughs> there was immediate ramifications, and all of them were extremely negative. You had to be convinced by the power of God, not because myself or you or anybody else had come up to him and said, believe this, but you became convinced in such an incredible way that it was the truth of God, it was the power of God that you believed. And as I reflected, I suddenly realized that's what happened to me when I gave my life to Jesus. I remember very consciously sitting back and saying, if I entrust my life to Jesus, and this, like everything else I've tried, turns out to be disappointing. I'm out of bullets. I'm out of carrots. I'm out of sticks. I'm out of a reason to keep on living because drugs didn't do it. Eastern mysticism didn't do it. Uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll didn't do it. Nothing did it. it, it, it's, it it's empty and unfulfilling. And what's the difference if I die at 20 or I die at 50? I'm still dead. Read a little bit too much Albert Camus for my good. But the whole point was, if Jesus proves not to be real too, then I'm without hope. I have no place else to turn. And for me, that was the challenge. <laughs> Stepping out and saying, I'm going to receive Christ and believe that He's the way, the truth, and the life that He is the only way to the Father. And in doing that, all I can say is He was there. The power of God, the power to save, was there in my life immediately, and I was transformed suddenly and completely. Not that all my bad habits went away, but the entire direction and trajectory of my life changed. And it became simply, Lord, wherever you lead, I'm going to follow. I just want to be where you are. Wherever that is, I just want to be where you are. You can take me to the ends of the world, the ends of the earth, the most remote and unknown place. You can take me to Spokane. <laughs> but Paul said later on, I'm not a lot afraid to be let down. I'm not afraid about being disappointed. I'm not afraid about being, being disgraced. And says, in fact, the past is behind me, forgetting the past, looking forward to what lies ahead, he said to the Philippians, I press on to the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going to spend the next eight chapters telling you and me why that makes absolute, complete, logical, and reasonable sense. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we begin the journey through this wondrous book, a book that I have to confess is so much bigger in intellect than my mind can even comprehend. Its truths are so profound, it's, they're so compelling that, even, that my mind sometimes struggles to truly grasp what the message is. But God, you help us in our weakness. How fundamental these things are going to be for us. How critically important to our understanding of what it means to follow you. How it transformed the church of Rome from a state of confusion and conflict into a condition of confidence, boldness, and power. So that as over the next 250 years, as one persecution after another, after another, after another fell upon them and they were pulled into the arenas to be ripped apart by wild animals and burned at the stake and all sorts of horrible things, they just continued to march forward in their faith because they were looking to your power, not their own. They were resting in your strength and your righteousness, Lord, the shamelessness that you bring to us, Lord, because we have been justified by Christ. We pray for your grace in this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul said to the Romans that he yearned to come to him so he might impart a blessing, and uh, so that as we continue on, I'm going to be up here in front along with some others to pray with you, and, <clears throat> and I have a, a viral blessing I want to impart to you so that... <laughs> 
if you are, have the faith to get close enough, you know, that uh, there must be some grace in feeling as horrible as I do at this moment. But on a serious note, as I remind you every week that these elements here are designed by God not to become a ritual format for a part of our service, but rather that they be a place where we really can objectively, publicly, personally commit ourselves once again to Him. What the elements really were designed to say is that He is everything. He's, you're complete in Him. That His body and His blood were shed to pay the price in full so that when He died on the cross, He yelled out, It is finished. By faith in Jesus, you entered into the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's where the righteousness of God becomes my righteousness. And my shame is no longer relevant to the conversation. But I know a shame-free life in Christ, not because I'm innocent, but because I have been acquitted by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to come and partake. If you would like prayer, I'm, I'm available here. If your <clears throat> health is compromised at any level, you may want to go to this wings and pray with those folks. But if you want me to pray with you, I'd be glad to bless you. Let's respond to God.